Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is food to us, that it is drink to us, that it satisfies us because it gives us what we need most, which is your son, Jesus. Lord, we long that in this time that we would come to know Jesus more, that we would see him as he is, trust him, love him, walk with him, obey him. Lord, please help us to see Jesus this morning. Please help me to make him known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you know the value of something? How do you know the value of something? So let's say in the midst of clearing out a parent's attic, you find a box of pristine baseball cards or uh, a painting carefully wrapped and preserved or an unopened wedding present, a waffle iron from the 1940s. How do you know If that's worth anything, how do you know what something's worth? Well, you know what it's worth, you know what its value is by what someone's willing to give for it. What someone's willing to give for it. So I did a quick review of some Sotheby's sales in the last few months, and there are some items of extraordinary value. There was a a, a silk screen by Andy Warhol that went for $105 million U.S. There was an internally perfect 60-carat, 60-carat pink diamond sold for $83 million U.S. This, I couldn't believe. A six-liter crystal decanter of single malt scotch went for $628,000 for scotch. And I, I would have no idea how to assess the value of any of that stuff. I only know what it's worth because of what someone was willing to give for it. And it's the same way in our lives, in our day-to-day lives. I can tell what something's worth to you, what the value of something is to you by what you're willing to give for it. So I can tell what it's worth to you to be at your child's football match because of what you're willing to give to be there. Maybe give up a quiet morning in the office or give up a lazy Saturday in order to be on the sidelines. I can tell what's, what's valuable to you by what you give. Is there anything in your life worth your life? Probably not much, right? Maybe the, well, maybe the safety of your family, maybe an ideal like freedom of speech or human rights in, um, well, it's in, in Europe, it's so bad right now, in Ukraine. Um, is there anything in your life worth your life? This morning, we're going to look at a story about a man whose message was worth his life. But before we get there, we need to get caught up in the Gospel of Mark. We were preaching through the Gospel of Mark through the fall, and then we took a four-week break over the last month to re-examine our mission as a church, our vision, what God has called us to do, how he's called us to do it. But now we're getting back into Mark. So you, you might remember that through the fall, we, we saw that Jesus of Nazareth appeared on the stage of history. And he appeared saying that the God who made the world was about to invade it. He was about to come and change it and make it new. And this invasion of God's goodness and power he called the kingdom of God. And Jesus understood himself to be the king of the kingdom, the one who was bringing God's reign and power. And as he went about preaching, he did these amazing miracles, these incredible works where he, with a touch, healed people of their diseases, that he could lift them, paralyzed people, lift them off their mats, and they could walk. He spoke life into dead people. He just, he told them, okay, it's time to live now. Boom. And 
he claimed the authority to forgive all sin. And as he went around, as he traveled from place to place, he was gathering around him a select group of hand-picked nobodies. He was calling fishermen, right, and a national traitor, uh, a, a political subversive, a man who would eventually betray Jesus' own life for 30 pieces of silver. These were his disciples. He was gathering around them, around him. And, he, and Mark says in chapter 3 that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him and he might send them out. So he wanted these guys, these, these nobodies, to be with him, to, to travel with him, to see what he did, to hear what he taught, and then to be like him, to go out and proclaim it, to do what he was doing, preaching and doing miracles, to be with him and to be like him. So for a long time in our preaching, we've been looking at the disciples being with Jesus, kind of following him around. They're in the room when he raises the woman to life. They're on the sidelines when he's telling his parables. But in chapter 6, where we're getting this morning, there's a shift. And now it's no longer the disciples being with him only, but it's now his disciples being like him, going out and preaching themselves. So he's just sent them out on this kind of short-term mission trip to go two by two and preach. That's what's happening in Mark chapter 6 when we get here. So it's this shift from just being about who Jesus is to being about what it means to be his messenger, which is why we've called this kind of section of the Gospel of Mark the king's message and messengers. So the last time we were in Mark, we saw Jesus send these disciples out on this short-term mission trip, and we saw that, that we, any, every Christian, is called to be a messenger as well, not an apostle in the same sense. We don't, we don't give up our jobs necessarily and go preach everywhere we go, but we're called in the same way, to represent Jesus, and as we have opportunity, to speak about him to the people in our lives, to our neighbors and coworkers and friends and family. We're called to be his messengers, to be ambassadors for him. But right in the middle of this story about this short-term mission trip, right in the middle of the story about messengers, there's this very strange episode that seems almost like a digression. So I'm going to start reading in Mark 6, verse 12, so you can get a kind of feel for what's going on. We'll see the digression. We'll see how it kind of ties at the end, and then we'll see what God's saying to us through it. So this is Mark chapter 6, verse 12. So they, the disciples, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said, to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is a strange story, right? For one thing, in a book that bills itself as the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus hardly comes into the story at all. It's, it's off somewhere away from where Jesus and his disciples are. And for another thing, it feels like a very dramatic soap opera. We have a woman divorcing her husband to marry his brother, who also happens to be her uncle, right? Which is not normal, it seems, that you wouldn't expect that every day. You have a, a birthday party with a beheading. It's like something out of the Tudors. You think that Henry VIII, maybe, but, but Herod Antipas, no. It's, it really intrudes onto this story about these disciples going out preaching and coming back. So the connection, we need to see what the connection is here. What's, why is this here? What, why did God put this here? He doesn't waste words. So what's this doing in our Bibles where we find it? Well, the connection of the story to the, rest of the, to the rest of the passage is that Herod has heard about these guys going out to preach. That Jesus has sent these men out two by two. They're calling people to repent. They're saying, this guy Jesus, he does miracles. He's amazing. You've got to hear him. And this, these reports get to Herod. He hears there's this man calling people to repent. He does great wonders. And Herod, in his guilty conscience, thinks, oh man, I killed this guy. And he's back. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And this, so this Herod, this isn't, this isn't the Herod you remember from the Christmas story, right? The Herod who hears about this king born in Bethlehem, and in his paranoia, he sends guys to kill all the boys in Bethlehem to make sure no king arises. This isn't that Herod. That's Herod the Great, so-called. This is Herod Antipas, his son, who is the ruler of the area of Galilee, where Jesus grew up, where he did a lot of his ministry. Um, And so Herod hears about this guy doing wonders. He thinks John has been raised from the dead. And, And you might think, I mean, if you've been following the series for a while, you might think, John the Baptist? I thought he already was dead. Like, we haven't heard about John the Baptist since September. And all of a sudden, he comes back in here. The last thing we heard about John the Baptist was chapter 1, verse 14, Mark says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So chapter 1, like the beginning of chapter 1 almost, John was arrested, and he's been, we haven't heard from him at all ever since. This whole time Jesus has been going out, preaching, gathering disciples, telling parables, all this stuff. John has been sitting in a prison cell, and you forgot about him, right? He, He was like this kind of, early figure in the gospel. He was this, this prophet who went before Jesus, who prepared the way, who said, the kingdom is coming. He said, you have to get ready. You have to turn from sin. He was out in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, turn from your sins, get ready. 
The king is coming. Be baptized to show you're making a fresh start. And then, just like that, arrested, gone, and we haven't thought about him since. So what got John in trouble? What got him arrested? Well, he was calling for repentance, right? He was telling people, turn from their sins. And he wasn't just preaching to the people who came. He was apparently preaching at the rulers, at people who didn't come to hear him. But he was saying of Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not according to our Jewish law, to what God has said, for you to have your brother's wife. And, and Herod didn't like it, right? He didn't like being told that what he's doing was unlawful because if people hear this, they start to get restless. They've got this unjust ruler. Rome is going to come in and take him out of power. They're going to remove him because they don't want a revolt. And so Herod has to keep him quiet. And besides that, his wife is furious, so he throws him into prison. So Herod, what happened was Herod has married Herodias. And I don't know if you noticed, those names are almost the same. And it's because they're already related, even before they get married. Herodias is his niece by one of his half-brothers. She's married to another half-brother, but they want to be together, so she leaves her husband, marries her uncle, also her husband's brother. And this is just outrageous for John. So John calls it out, says it what it is, and John is thrown in prison. So that's the background to the story. So John is sitting in prison. Jesus has been doing all these great miracles. John is forgotten. And Herod occasionally comes down and hears him preach, but otherwise John is just totally cut off. But Herod didn't want to put John to death. He wanted him quiet. He didn't want him criticizing him. He didn't want him preaching about how immoral he is, but he didn't intend to put him to death. He, it says that the passage says that he actually protected him from Herodias, who, who wanted him dead and eventually got what she wanted. He kept him safe because he knew that he was a righteous and holy man, that he was good. And even, even this guy who would marry his niece and um, do all these awful things, he didn't want to kill a righteous and good man if he didn't have to. But eventually his pride becomes his downfall, right? He throws this party on his birthday. He, he uh, at some point, brings in his, uh, his stepdaughter to dance, maybe to show off her beauty. And, you know, I'm sure the, the, the drink is flowing, his heart is merry with wine, and he makes this outrageous gesture of, all right, ask me anything, and I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And his wife knows that her moment has come, and you know what happens. You heard the story. The daughter comes and asks the mom, what should I ask for? Should I, should I take half the kingdom? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. They go, behead him, bring him back. It says that the, the king was exceedingly sorry. He didn't want to do it, but because of his oath and his guests, he wanted to keep his word. So John's life comes to an abrupt end. His disciples come, collect the body, bury it in a tomb. That's the story. But what's the point? Why did God put this in our Bible? I believe Mark told this story about a messenger whose message cost him his life into the middle of a story about other messengers going out in order to tell us this, a message worth your life will cost your life. A message worth your life will cost your life. This passage gives us three truths to help messengers, and, and everyone who hears a Christian is a messenger, count the cost of being a messenger and stay faithful in it. So first, 
First truth, messengers can expect a mixture of reception and rejection. This is one of the repeated themes of Mark chapter 6. We see it over and over. We see it first with Jesus, that Jesus, in the beginning of Mark chapter 6, goes back to his hometown, to Nazareth. He's done these great works other places. He comes to Nazareth, and they don't have any time for him. They take offense at him. They reject him. They don't have faith to be healed. They don't want to hear what he has to say. So Jesus experiences reception and rejection. And then we have the apostles, right? Jesus sends them out, and it seems like they have some success. They're able to cast out some demons. They, they heal people. They come back excited to tell Jesus all they'd done and taught. But before they went, in verse 11 of chapter 6, Jesus told them they shouldn't expect that everywhere. He says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. They were to expect both reception and rejection. And John is just the latest example, right? Here's this guy that was followed by huge crowds, but he criticized the wrong person, thrown in prison, marked a criminal, left for dead, forgotten. He experienced both reception and rejection. And it's going to be the same for us. If we're faithful messengers, we can expect some people to like what we have to say and some people to have no time for it, to never want to hear us speak on that subject again. You can expect it. We're not guaranteed that if we're faithful, everything's going to be easy. We're not guaranteed that if we're faithful, we'll always be safe. John was a great prophet. He was Jesus' relative, and John died alone in prison. We can expect some rejection. It's part of the cost. And that's frightening, right? I mean, think about, think about that soberly for yourself. It's going to cost you something to be a messenger for Jesus. It would make us feel so much better if John just promised As long as you obey me, you're always going to be safe. Your kids are going to be safe. You're never going to be attacked. That's never going to happen. I'm going to take care of you. He doesn't promise that. He didn't promise it to John. That's not what he wants us to expect. So just think for a moment about what this would be like for Jesus and his disciples to hear this news. right? John was Jesus' relative, his cousin. He was this guy who'd gone before him preaching. He baptized Jesus. He even told some of his disciples, don't follow me anymore. Follow that guy. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And these disciples, many of them had been John's disciples first. They'd they'd eaten with him and followed him around. They'd shared laughs. They'd shared tears. They knew him well. And now they hear this report that he's been killed. I don't know if you, if you know the feeling that is very acute for me when you're, you're reading a book or you're watching a show and you've become really attached to the characters, like really unhealthily attached to the characters. This always happens when I read Harry Potter. And, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one of them is killed. One of the main characters is killed and you just, you're in disbelief. Right? You turn the page back and you read it again. Did I miss something? That can't be what happened. How could they? How could they? And then it dawns on you, nobody's safe. Like this, they could do anything now. Anything could happen to these characters that I thought were safe. And so obviously magnify that a thousand times from a story into real life. But that's got to be how it feels. These guys feel like, we're going to take on the world. We're preaching for Jesus. We're messengers of the king. Like we're, we're coming back from this mission trip. We cast out demons. Like that was awesome. And then they hear John the Baptist has been killed, and it must have cast a shadow over them. And Jesus as well, right? Jesus 
has to see in John's death that his own is approaching. Jesus knows why he came. So it's frightening to think of the cost of being a messenger, but in another way, it's encouraging. Experiencing rejection or suffering because you're a messenger, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Right? We can, sometimes we, we, we decide we're going to share the gospel with a parent or a friend, and we pray ahead of time, we approach it gently, and we just get totally blown off. Right? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know what we have to say. And you can kind of go back and in your head think, what, where did I go wrong? What did I, I, thought, I thought I prayed about this. I thought I did it in a kind way. I'm just not sure, God, where, where did I go wrong? And the, the truth is you didn't go wrong. That's just what you can expect. So you don't, you don't have to scrutinize everything you do. The, the key is to be faithful and let God take care of whether they receive or reject it. So we've seen that messengers can expect their share of reception and rejection. Second truth from this passage, messengers can expect a conflict between interest and idols. So this, this mix of reception and rejection is what we can expect kind of from instance to instance. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But this conflict between interest and idols is what we can expect in the heart of every person we speak to. We can expect a conflict within them between the interest they have in this message that we preach, which is the, not only the most interesting, but the best message in the history of the world, and between, between that and their idols, the things that aren't God, the things besides God that they love and they look to for meaning and purpose, the things that they wouldn't want to live without. And so their interest in their idols are going to be in conflict, and that's the portrait that Mark paints of Herod in this passage. It's really remarkably complex, right? He's not just this kind of like villain twisting his hands and his mustache and, you know, tying people to a railroad track. He's this really interesting person who has good and bad things about him. On the one hand, he did some reprehensible things, right? He arrested John just because he didn't like him telling the truth about what he'd done. And, and then he had him beheaded, right? So that's clearly in the negative column. But we also know that Herod protected John from his wife because he knew him to be a good man. We know that verse 20 tells us that Herod, when he heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He didn't understand everything he heard, but he liked listening to John. He liked having him around. When Herod realized that his vow, if he kept it, was going to mean John being beheaded, it said he was exceedingly sorry. He felt bad about it. It wasn't what he wanted to do. There was something good going on. There was a conflict between his interest and his idols. So what do I mean by his idols? Well, it's totally clear that although Herod had some sympathy for John, that something else had his heart. There was something he loved more than God that meant if he could serve that, he would do some morally awful things, right? Like beheading a righteous man. The passage tells us that he arrested John for the sake of Herodias. So he wanted to please his wife, so he arrested a righteous man. And and he had a stake in it in keeping him safe as well, right? So he could preserve his power so that people wouldn't turn against him, so that he could stay in his position of responsibility. And when when he had made his vow that he would do anything, and he knew that she was going to ask, that she had asked, for the head of John the Baptist, he could have changed his mind, right? He could have broken his word. He could have kept John alive, but he didn't. There was something else he wanted more than to serve and please God, than to do what was right. He didn't want his guests to see him go back on his word. He wanted to maintain his reputation 
and his hold on power. He wanted to project integrity and ruthlessness. Those things were more important to him than pleasing God. And they defeated his interest in hearing John and keeping him alive. And every one you speak to about the gospel is going to have something like that in their heart, something more important than God that keeps them from really paying attention to the things that you're saying about him. It could be money. It could be their family. It could be the respect of other people. And that doesn't mean that people don't have genuine intellectual questions about Christianity. They do, and those should be addressed. But there's something more than just questions that keeps people from hearing the gospel and trusting in it. There's something in their heart they love more. People often don't want Christianity to be true. Because if it's true, it means we have to turn away from certain things in our lives, things that give us meaning and purpose, things that we love, things that make life worth living. A relationship that you know isn't pleasing to God, but feels like the best thing in your life. A job that you've always wanted, but keeps you from being able to invest in your family. And the message of Christianity will always come into conflict with idols because the message of Christianity calls people not just to, to think differently, not just to believe and acknowledge that certain facts are true, but to repent, to change in their hearts. That's what got John into trouble. It wasn't that he preached that Jesus was the Lamb of God. It's that he said, Herod, what you're doing is out of bounds. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. If you want to do what's right, you've got to turn you have to change. And we, we can understand that, right? Nobody likes to be told to repent. We don't like to be told to repent. We don't like the feeling of knowing what we've been doing is wrong or that we enjoyed doing what was wrong. We don't like the feeling of someone else putting their finger on a problem in our life. Nobody likes to be told to repent. People like to hear that God loves them. And he does. It's true. Even people who aren't Christians can be moved by the idea of Jesus laying down his life for his enemies, which he did. People can understand why we think grace is such good news, that God gives us salvation freely, not because we've become righteous, not because we're good, but because he loves us, because it's a gift. People can understand why that is good news. But when we tell them that the right response to that, the right response to what Jesus has done is to turn from idols, is to repent, that's where we get in trouble. When we tell them that, What's been your God to this point can't be your God anymore. Now God has to be your God first in your life. That's the trouble. That's the trouble. So it's so tempting to just skip over that part, right? It's so tempting to just, in your speaking, just speak about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and just, you know, hope maybe that part can come later. And it's, it's tempting in your own life, right, even just to, to think more about what God has done for you and all those things, which is really important and where everything starts, but to never get to the part about what do I need to turn from? What is God calling me to turn from so that he can be everything to me? We need to be preaching the good news, right? Repentance isn't the good news. It's really important to keep those separate. The good news is what Jesus has done, that he has, he has come and he has lived and he has died and he has risen so that those who are not God's people can become God's people. Jesus has taken the punishment we deserve so we can have the acceptance he deserves. That's the good news. The good news, you don't do anything for salvation. Repentance isn't the good news, but it's part of the necessary response to it, according to Scripture. So Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus' first words in this gospel, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. 
in Acts 2, after Peter preaches the good news to a huge group of people, and they say to him, what must we do to be saved? Okay, we believe you. What's next? Verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When after his resurrection, Jesus sent his followers into the world, Luke 24, 47, he said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So repentance should be proclaimed to all nations. Where the good news goes, you talk about repentance. It's not the good news, but it's part of what we proclaim. It's part of the message. It's essential. If a person doesn't repent, it means they haven't understood Repenting doesn't mean a person has to become perfect or suddenly not sin at all. No one can do that. That's not what God requires. We're not saved by the things we do. But it does mean we turn in our hearts from the things that we were worshiping before to worship God first and alone. And if we haven't done that, if our heart hasn't changed, there's no evidence that God has made us new. Because when God comes, he changes things. When the Spirit of God enters a person, he makes things new. He takes the unlivable dump of a house, and he buys it, and he renovates it to make a dwelling for himself, to make a palace for the king. When he comes, he changes things. So if your life hasn't changed, it doesn't show that anything is different. As Martin Luther is reported to have said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Lives change. So think of it this way. Think You're enjoying a meal in your living room in front of the television and someone bursts through the door and says, stop, that water you're drinking is poisoned. I have the antidote with me. What I need you to do is put down the poison. Don't drink any more of that and come and take the cure. It would make no sense to say to them, I believe you. I believe you. That is really good news. I'm so glad you told me. And then keep drinking the poison. Repentance is putting down the poison. Or imagine yourself running in a park. You're on these dirt paths, hilly, windy. You come around a corner, you see someone running towards you, and they say, you got to stop. There's a bridge out up there. It's on a hill. If you come over that hill and you're still going full speed, you won't be able to stop. You're going in a ravine. And you, you wouldn't say, that is such good news. You have no idea what that means to me today. I just really appreciate that. And keep running. It wouldn't make any sense, right? Repentance is turning around and running the other way. If you believe what they say, it would show in your life. You would turn. You would put the poison down. And this is one of the most loving things God can do for us. The most loving thing God can do for us is to turn, from, turn us from the things that are killing us, the things that we're worshiping that aren't him, that aren't what's of first importance, turning us from those things to come to him who is the fountain of living water, who is a feast that eternally satisfies. It's loving of God to turn us from the false gods that we think are really going to give us life to himself. If we really understood what he was doing when he called us to repent, we wouldn't ever stop thanking him for, for not leaving us alone, for speaking to us, for turning us, for bringing us to himself. So have you, as messengers, those of you who are Christians, have you embraced that repentance is part of the message? That the the good news is the most important part. What Jesus has done is the most important, but repentance is part of the message. Have you embraced that in your speaking? Even though it's hard and people are going to hate it and it's going to come into conflict with idols in their life, 
Have you embraced that in your speaking? Have you embraced it in your living? Is repentance part of your rhythm with God where you receive his good news, you receive his instruction, you turn from lesser things to worship him above all? This isn't the only sticking point people have with Christianity today, but it's a big one. People don't like to change. But if they can see repentance in your life, they can see you changing, growing in love for God, turning from lesser things, it's going to make your call to repent even more credible. So messengers can expect a mixture of reception and rejection. They can expect a conflict between interest and idols. Thirdly and finally, messengers will remain faithful when they have a greater hope than safety. Messengers will remain faithful when they have a greater hope than safety. One of the things I wondered as I was reading this passage is, why does, why does Mark give us so much detail about something that has nothing seemingly to do with Jesus? He could have just said, after this, John was beheaded. And that, that would have reminded us of the cost of being a messenger, right? But he gave us all this detail. He took us through the whole story. He gave us he gave us the details of the party. He gave us details of the prison. He told us all these things. Why did he do that? Why did he give us so much detail? Mark is choosing details carefully because he wants to anticipate for us another arrest and death. One much more important than John's. I mean, listen to this description. Does this remind you of anyone? A popular Jewish preacher arrested unjustly for his controversial teaching, condemned to execution by a ruler who found no guilt in him, but feared losing power and influence if he let him go. The teacher's lifeless body, collected by his disciples, put in a tomb. I mean, who does that sound like? Who does that, who does that point to? Mark is, is pointing ahead to Jesus' death and resurrection. These similarities, though, highlight one bright, flashing, neon-yellow difference between John and Jesus. John was laid in the tomb, and he stayed there. Jesus was laid in the tomb, and he got up. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to show he defeated death, to show that what he'd done on the cross was effective for all who would trust in him, that he had won salvation for those who couldn't do so for themselves. This account of Jesus' death very intentionally points ahead to Jesus' death and resurrection. Why? Because Jesus' death and resurrection provide the only sure hope for messengers who know they'll be opposed and rejected. God does not guarantee your safety as a messenger. He doesn't guarantee that you won't be beheaded. But he does guarantee that every messenger will rise. Every messenger, everyone who belongs to Jesus, is eventually going to find themselves in the tomb. Until Jesus comes back, everybody dies. Nobody lives forever. Now, some will die because of the message, which is not likely in Cayman, though lots of places in the world it's a possibility. Some will die of natural causes after long lives in service of the message. But every messenger, sooner or later, comes to the tomb. But because Jesus' tomb is empty, they won't stay in theirs forever. Every other tomb is emptied as well. When Jesus comes back, every tomb opens. Everyone rises to the last judgment, either to be sent away from Jesus forever or to hear his well-done, good, and faithful servant. Even John, 
who's been there for 2,000 years, John will rise and enter into the joy of his master. And that's a better hope than safety. It's a better hope than comfort. The better, better hope than, um, I hope this doesn't cost me too much. We have something sure and steadfast. When Jesus comes, we're going to rise and be with him forever. The better hope than safety is resurrection. Rising and living with Jesus eternally in perfection. No sin, no death, no struggle anymore. I can, I can remember hearing a very passionate preacher urge young people to move away from comfort, to move away from the places they were living, to go to the places where Jesus is not known, where there's no indigenous church preaching his name, teaching the gospel, to go, even though it might cost them everything. And, and what's always stuck with me that he said is, he said, the worst they can do is kill you. And he laughed. And I thought, is that supposed to comfort me? The worst they can do is kill you? Is that supposed to make me feel better about this? That's the worst thing there is. But it's not the worst thing there is. The worst thing is to live and die without Christ and to spend eternity in outer darkness. And there are people we know in that situation. And we have the message that can set them free forever. The worst they can do is kill us, and even that doesn't last forever. But of course, most of us won't be killed for being messengers of the gospel, especially in Cayman. And it would almost seem silly to talk about it if it weren't for the fact that it's a reality for people, for brothers and sisters around the world, in places like North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Egypt, Nigeria. And don't assume that because you live in a place where it's safe to be a Christian, that you should stay here. Right? I was thinking about this this week. This church is full of young professionals, some who aren't married, some who don't have kids, and you could find work in places where they would never allow a pastor or a full-time missionary to come. You could do what you do in places where Jesus isn't known and where you could get in a lot of trouble, where it could cost you a lot. We don't, we don't want you to stay here forever. We want to be a sending base where people come and they grow and they go to do costly things so that Jesus is known, so that people are delivered from darkness. That's what kind of church we want to be. But some of us, maybe many of us, will stay in safe places. So are we exempt from this? Are we exempt from the cost of being a messenger? No. Even for us who won't be killed for the gospel, who won't ever be beheaded, we're going to experience a daily dying. Every day, the kind of dying that comes with turning from a love of comfort and living the way Jesus wants us to live, that comes from being kept at arm's length by our families because they don't share our beliefs and don't want to hear about it, that comes from being passed over for promotion because we're Christians, being criticized to our face or slandered behind our back. There's, there's going to be a kind of death we experience even if we live to the end of our days. One way or another, a message worth your life will cost your life, even if it's little by little, even a little at a time. But it's worth our lives. The message is worth our lives. It's the best news ever spoken. A holy God who could justly condemn us for turning from him has instead sent his son to die in our place. He's now reconciling the world to himself, adopting eternally as sons and daughters those who have been his enemies, all who will trust in him. We get to carry that message, to be ambassadors for it. God uses us to get it to people who don't know it. It's worth what it'll cost us to be carriers of that message. And as we experience the cost, we'll show the world how valuable 
the message is. Just like the Andy Warhol print and the half-million-dollar scotch, people will see the value of the gospel by what we're willing to give for it, not to get it for ourselves, but to give it away to other people. The Apostle Paul, who suffered extensively for the gospel, said in 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs, not, belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul understood that when he was suffering to bring the gospel to people, that the death of Jesus was being carried in his body, that he was experiencing some of what Jesus experienced in bringing us salvation. He was sharing, he was sharing in Christ's sufferings, but also showing them to the world. And as he did so, he drew attention to the great treasure he carried. J. Oswald Sanders, who was a mission leader for a long time in the last century, told a story of an Indian evangelist who would walk barefoot village to village to preach the good news about Jesus. And he, One day, at the end of another long day, he came to a village and he tried to preach and they just shut him down and left him out. And so his feet were covered in blisters. He was exhausted. He just found a tree at the edge of the village and laid down to sleep. And when he woke up, the whole village was gathered around him. And he didn't know what was happening. He didn't know, this could be the last thing I ever see. But they told him, we came out to see what kind of man you were. And when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you must be a holy man. And we want to know what message you have that makes you willing to suffer so much to share it. By his suffering, by sharing the sufferings of Christ, by the cost of being a messenger, he showed the value of his message and he won a hearing for the good news. Just so with us, as we take the little hits that come from being a messenger, being rejected, being pushed away, being gossiped about, as we take those hits and stay faithful, we show how valuable the message is. And we, we elicit the curiosity of those who are willing to listen. As we suffer as messengers, as we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, we, we look ahead, as Paul did, to when the life of Christ is made manifest in our bodies, when we rise from the dead with him forever. That hope, a much greater hope than safety, will help us remain faithful. God in this passage is calling us to a sober resolve to give ourselves to being messengers. He wants us to be open-eyed about the cost. It's going to cost us something, and it's worth the cost that, it, that comes with it. It will, in different ways, carry the death of Jesus in our bodies, and it may, as it did for Paul and for John the Baptist, cost us our lives. But the message that costs our life is worth our life. There's no better news. So, where do you need to speak about Jesus? To your children? Or to your parents? To a coworker, To a spouse who doesn't trust what you trust? Christianity Explored is coming. It's an opportunity to have conversations about Jesus with people in your life over dinner. Whom will you invite? God is not calling you, and I want to relieve you a little, God's not calling you to go from zero to 60 tomorrow. He doesn't expect you to you know, email a lengthy presentation of the gospel to all your Outlook contacts, call everyone you know, and, you know, read the Bible to them over the phone. He's not calling you to go from zero to 60 tomorrow. You don't need to, you don't need to do those things, but choose to do something. 
Do one thing. Drop by an office. Pick up the phone. Drive out of your way. Make an invite. Set up lunch. Take one step in one relationship this week to start communicating the good news about Jesus, the best news ever spoken to someone who doesn't know it. Let's pray for God's help. Our Father, we thank you so much for shooting us straight, for telling us that there will be a cost to being a messenger, but also assuring us that it's worth it, that knowing you, being faithful to you, even though it costs us, will end with us rising with you and living with you forever in a place where sin doesn't reach, where death never comes, where every tear is wiped away. Lord, please help us to worship not comfort or safety, but worship you and obey you. Please use us to introduce people to Jesus on this island and around the world. Please help us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.